What a great way to start before we open God's word by going to him in prayer like that. Thank you, Gil, for that. I really appreciate that. And uh, as we begin this morning, uh, we're actually uh, I was thinking about this passage. We're actually going to be in Luke chapter nine this morning. I'll talk about why in just a second. We're kind of taking a break from the series we've been in for a few weeks. But as I was looking at this passage and thinking about it, this this uh, phrase kept coming to mind. I kept thinking of a of a football player and the phrase I was thinking of. Is your game face. If you've ever heard that in sports, they say your game face, what what you look like when you're really intense and you're ready. And uh, when I think of that term, uh, I remember growing up watching football with my dad and my brothers when we were little. And there was one guy, whenever he was on TV, they would always, always mention that. And his name was Mike Singletary. And Mike Singletary was a linebacker. And he was a very scary looking man when he got on a football field. And they would always zoom in and they would show his eyes and he'd have this intensity and they'd always say, oh, look at his game face. He's so he's so serious and he's so intense. And and when he stepped on the field, the guy was a great, great player. But when he stepped on the field, he was just so singular in his purpose. He was so intense about what he was doing. And the funny thing about Mike Singletary is off the field, he's this really meek, mild man who's a Christian and he's very outspoken in his face in his faith. But when he stepped on the field, it was like something went off. I mean, he was serious about uh, hitting people really, really hard, basically. And uh, so but I was I was thinking about that, that singularity of this focus and the way that he would look and that idea of, of kind of putting on your game face. And I kept coming back to that because of our our passage this morning, because we see something very similar with Jesus today. We see Jesus is, is uh, you'll notice the, the title of the sermon is he sets his face to Jerusalem. And we see this singular purpose in Jesus's life and the way that he is so set on what he came to do and why. And I, and, and I just saw those kind of, that kind of correlation there this morning. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, that focus. And, and as we do that, we're setting aside, as I said, our sermon series that we've been in for the next few weeks. And the reason is simply this, to to spend a little bit of time in the Gospels and really prepare our hearts for the celebration that is Easter. You know, Easter is the central thing in our faith. It all hinges around Christ's death and resurrection. And so I wanted us just to spend a few weeks really preparing so that we we really feel the weight of that celebration when we come together on Easter Sunday to celebrate. So let me just set the scene since we're jumping into a different passage from our from our series we've been in. We're going to be in Luke chapter nine. And the scene uh, here is um, maybe, you know, maybe you're not aware of this, but Jesus's ministry, his earthly ministry was three years. And a lot of times we like to break them up into very distinct sections and we call them different things. But a lot of times you'll hear the first year is his year of inauguration. The second year is his year of uh, celebration or favor. And then the third year is the year of opposition. And in the third year, what's to what starts to happen is is Jesus keeps kind of pushing everybody on their understandings of the Messiah. And he keeps saying some things and he's he says some things that are hard to understand. And the religious leaders start to get upset with him. And there's a lot of things swirling around him. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're really pretty much right in the middle of that third year. Jesus is coming up to the time when he'll be taken up for his death, uh, where he's put to death on the cross. And this is just a few months out from that. And so you're starting to see all these things swirling around him and the misunderstandings that go with that. And uh, what you start to see is Jesus starts to begin to say more and more that he's going to die. He starts to tell his disciples that he says it several times. They totally miss it. 
They're looking to a Messiah that will be uh, will come triumphantly and will be a political and religious leader and they'll march in and they'll overthrow Rome and they'll do all these things. And when Jesus starts saying, I'm going to die, they don't know how to take it. They're totally thrown by that. And he says it several different times. Uh, it, just in this same chapter in Luke, in chapter, uh, in chapter 9 and verse 22, it says, The Son of Man, as he was saying to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And nobody gets this. He says it over and over and nobody really understands what he's saying or what's going on. You see uh, Peter say to him, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. He, he confesses that in the same chapter just a little earlier, but still not getting it. He even says to him again in verse 44, and Jesus says it just like this. He says to his disciples, they were marveling at everything he was doing. And he says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And he says this over and over, he even says it a couple times in this very chapter. And he keeps saying this and they keep missing it because their understanding of the kingdom of God is an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is talking about something so much greater and bigger than that. And so he keeps saying it over and over. And what we see, uh, that's just the background of our passage this morning. And, and I say that to say there's this misunderstanding that's going on. And so as we step into this passage, here's Jesus thinking and saying one thing, looking one way, and everybody else is somewhere else. They're not really with him and what he's saying and where he's going with this. They're all kind of set on the earthly things down here. And Jesus is up here in his focus of what's to happen. So let's look together with that as the background. Uh, let's look together this morning at this passage in Luke 9. And as we do, just one, one more way of introduction. What we see here a lot is uh, what Jesus's mindset is. But, but the rest of this passage really is him kind of correcting the people that are with him. And it says a lot to us as believers, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you consider yourself what we call to be a Christian today, it says a lot about what that looks like and what Jesus says. And I will say this, a lot of times we say there's nothing wrong with saying you're a Christian. That's, that's what we say in our culture, that's what it is. But if we were to be really biblical in our thinking about following Christ and what that means, we would say we're disciples of Jesus. Jesus never uses the term Christian. He always talks about disciples making disciples and bringing them along. He tells us in the Great Commission to go make disciples. And what that means really is uh, to follow Jesus, to be more like him, to be a disciple of Jesus is seeking to be more and more like him. And so this passage says a lot for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Not only do we see his mindset and kind of what's going on and looking towards Easter, but it also says a lot to us where we are today as disciples of, of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and that you're not there, you say, I don't really want to be a disciple. I'm not even sure. That's okay. This, this gives you a clear picture of who Jesus is and what he's about. So wherever you are in your walk, uh, this is really important passage for us to see. So let's read that. With that said, let's read this together. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, that's printed for you in the bulletin in the exact same version, the, the English Standard Version, which I'm going to read from. So... Verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. 
And they were going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another. He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray and then we're going to look at that together. Dear Lord, we just simply ask this morning that your spirit would be moving in this place, that you would uh, open our eyes to see this and our hearts to hear your word. I just pray that everything that's said uh, about this passage, about who you are, is pleasing and honoring to you, that it would all be in accord with your word and uh, what you would have for us today. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we look at this this morning, I want to ask a few questions, as we often do, and let the text answer those for us. But the first one I want us to consider is what does it mean that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem? Mark, or I'm sorry, Luke says that uh, two times in three verses. So I want us to consider that and what that means for us. And then the second question is when we miss that, uh, how does that what does that look like when we miss it? When it goes wrong, we see a lot of examples of people who are missing it and what it looks like. So what does it look like when we miss it? And then lastly, how do we get this right? How do we get it the way Jesus is telling us? So let's start first with that that phrase. He set his face to Jerusalem. You see it there in verse 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then 53, it says uh, they didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And you see it a little different way both times there, just in a couple of verses. And uh as I mentioned, you, you see this, this uh, just totally different things going on. People are missing what Jesus is saying. And here he is right in the middle with this focus going on. And what he's saying is and what he's telling them is, he's, or what Luke's telling us is Jesus is already looking ahead to the Passion Week. He's looking ahead to that time when he's going up and he's going to enter into the city. And uh, it's what we celebrate next week. Uh, this is very purposeful. We picked this passage of set his face to Jerusalem because in a lot of ways, that's what we're doing next week. We're setting our face on what Christ would come to do. And so what, when we talk about setting his face to Jerusalem, the next time he'd go up to Jerusalem after this passage, which is still a couple of months out, would be the triumphal entry. When Jesus rides in and he fulfills uh, all that they're, they're looking to uh, for the Old Testament Messiah. But then a few days later, he would be crucified and then a few days after that he'll be resurrected and that's what he's looking at that's what when we say jesus has set his face towards jerusalem he's looking at the happenings of that week and so what we could say is when he has set his face jesus has set his face to die that's really what we're saying that's what we're looking at jesus has set his face on the cross and how he would go to lay his life down and i say there's a huge misunderstanding going on here because everyone else is looking for an earthly king Uh, an earthly Messiah that's going to come and do these things right now in the here and now presently and set up his kingdom. And Jesus is looking at it a totally different way. He's looking as the Messiah that he's coming to lay his life down and to die, not to not to uh, bring the uprising to overthrow Rome as so many are looking for. And that's what we begin to see. And there's this, this stark, stark contrast between Jesus and all that's swirling around him. It's almost that's why I said at the beginning, that idea of kind of the game face, that here's Jesus in the midst of all these people looking for all these different things. But yet he has a laser focus on what he came to do in Jerusalem. And this is all going on around him. 
Everyone seeing it temporal or earthly and Jesus sees it eternal. And that's a huge difference. And so when we miss that, when we begin to miss what Jesus is saying and what he came to do, it leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, If we miss the centrality of the cross even today when we talk about Christianity, it leads to all kinds of problems. It leads to all sorts of uh, just messed up theology and things that we do. Uh, A lot of times what it ends up being is uh, church or being a Christian or whatever. It becomes all about us, meet my needs and all about me. And we, we can easily fall into that consumer mentality of our culture. It's all about me and what I want and what I'm looking to. But this is really all about God and what he came to do for us. You see the difference. And so if we miss this part, it leads to all sites, all types of problems and mistakes. And what we see here is when we get it wrong, instead of glorifying God by by loving others, some other things happen. And so that's what I want us to look at just for the second part for a minute is what happens when we miss this. And you see it clearly in verse 54 and 55. There's a great example there of what happens uh, what, what happens when we get this part wrong and what it looks like in terms of being a disciple of Jesus? And you see it in, in 54 and 55 when the disciples, James and John, saw this. What, what they saw was that they had rejected them in this town. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. See, what happens is when we miss this part and we turn it into this triumphal march that they're talking about and we're overthrowing and we're taking this by force and we're setting up this kingdom right now, you end up with things like James and John, although well-intentioned, totally are missing. God, shouldn't we just wipe these people out? And Jesus says, oh, wait a second. No, no, that's, that's not what we should do. And see, what happens is when we get into that, and sometimes, I'll be honest, that happens today. We get into that type of thinking or that type of language. There's there's other religions in the world that are directly against Christianity and what Jesus stands for, uh, the way God has revealed himself to us. But when we get into that thinking of, oh, we should just wipe them out. Let's get rid of them. That's that's the way we should handle it. Jesus says, no, 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 wait a second. That's not it. And and the reason uh, instead of it becoming an us versus them, oh, they've got it wrong and we've got it right. So now we'll just we'll go to war with them. It really should be us heartbroken for them that they don't see God as he's revealed it. And that's a big difference. And, and the reason I say it comes out of a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying about setting his face to Jerusalem is that's a misunderstanding of the gospel when we begin to shake our fists and say, oh, we should just wipe all those people out. And I say it's a misunderstanding because the reality is if you're a Christian and you put your faith in Christ, the only reason that you're standing, the only reason that you have that relationship is by God's grace alone. And what grace means is unmerited favor before God. So if it's unmerited favor for us to shake our fist and say, oh, go get those people, God. You're not understanding you're standing before God. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. Oh, wait a second. Slow down. We're not going to send fire down to wipe them out. And so what you get is this picture of just a second. And not only is it a misunderstanding of the gospel, the theological understanding of our standing before God and what that looks like. It's also a misunderstanding of how God's kingdom comes. Right. They're wanting to make it all about uh, military force or let's overthrow the government or let's do these things. Let's go right now. Come on, Jesus will make you king. And he says, oh, wait a second. Everywhere they go, you see this all throughout the gospels. Everywhere they go, Jesus is walking along and he says the kingdom of God is like. And he says that over and over, and he's always given these neat examples. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. 
And they all go, what? And he said, you know, and he's put, and you can imagine there's mustard seeds and plants all around where Jesus is teaching and walking. And you can imagine them pointing to him and saying, it's like a mustard seed. And a mustard seed is it grows into a little plant and it starts to get into everything and it grows and grows and it goes everywhere. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. It's not through power and force. It gets into everything and it comes and it begins to be revealed. Or in Luke chapter 17, it says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so it's a misunderstanding of what God's kingdom is and what it's like and how it comes. See, the reality is God's kingdom, when Christ went to the cross and died and he defeated death and he did, God's kingdom is here. He's already won. He's already done it. We don't see it completely yet, but it's already here. It's the already but not yet. There's still sin in the world and he's allowed it to happen for a time and he's going to come and make all things new. But in the meantime, he's still reigning. His kingdom is still here. We just don't see quite all of it yet. So I want you to think about what's really happening, what Jesus is saying versus them going, hey, we got to do this through power or military might or whatever. We need to wipe people out. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not that's not the way it works. See, it's a misunderstanding because the way it works is uh, God's kingdom comes through his Holy Spirit entering into your life and making you anew. And then you begin to go and tell and it begins to be revealed and spread And so it eradicates any ideas of this is coming by force. No, it's coming by God's spirit. It's coming by God changing hearts and renewing from the inside and it it getting into everything like the mustard seed. And so that's the picture here. And that's really what's happening. And so when we miss that, we miss so much. And then we miss what it means to be a disciple. And that's what you see here the rest of the way down, uh, starting in verse 57. You see people coming and talking to Jesus and what it means to follow him. And he's correcting along the way. And you see all these problems. Look at the first guy that comes up to him. Verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? And think about the misunderstanding that's happening here. Jesus has set his face to go uh, be mocked and spit on and made fun of and killed And this guy comes up and says, I'll go with you wherever, Jesus. And he says, oh, really? And then look what he says to him. The foxes have holes, birds have hair, but the birds have nests. But the son of the man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, wait a second. And see, it's a misunderstanding when we see it is this triumphal march and it'll be everything will be great and we'll overthrow everybody out of the way and it'll all be perfect. And Jesus says, well, wait a second, if you're really going to follow me, you need to really think about what's happening. And, and I want you just to think about right here the way Luke sets this up, that this picture of Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem and that's the backdrop. So these people are going, yeah, wherever, Jesus. And he says, well, wait a second, do you really get what that means? And he's always kind of slowing them down a little bit. I think of the first guys being the health and wealth gospel guy. Everything will be perfect. I'll do whatever you want. And Jesus says, well, wait a second. Slow down just a second. Or look at the second and third guys that come up in verse 59 uh, through 62. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And not another said, I will follow you. But first, let me say farewell to those at home. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you first read this, it sounds pretty harsh. 
right? The guy that comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I'm with you, Jesus, but just let me go bury my father. In our minds, a lot of times we read it as the poor guy's dad just died and he's in the funeral home and he's saying, I just need to take care of some things, but just just hold on a second. And, and we see it that way. That's kind of our modern. Re- that's not really what he's saying. It's not quite. It's, it is pretty harsh. Jesus is straightforward, but it's not quite as harsh as that. What he's really saying is in Jewish culture is you had to take care of your fa- Your family came first. And what he means by let me bury my father means his father's still living. And so there's still some things that need to be done. And it may be 10 years before his father dies or 20 years. But what he's saying is I need to take care of my family and I need to get things in order. And when my dad dies, I get the estate and I've got to make sure all that's in order. And when I get that, then I'll come follow you, Jesus. That's really what he's saying. And to that, Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead. And I want you to think about why he says that in that way. That sounds so harsh. But what he's saying is, let the spiritually dead, the spiritually dead are those that care more about having their retirement in order before following me. And he says, if that's what you're about, then you're spiritually dead. You go take care of the physical dead. It's pretty harsh. It's pretty straightforward. But when you get what Jesus is talking about and what he's really after and what's happening, it's absolutely true. And so he says that to this guy. Uh, you, you go do that if you have to. And there's so many applications for us. We say this all the time. You know, I'd like to go on a mission trip, but I've got to make sure I work enough. I won't get this promotion or I've got to have my whatever in order. If I do that, I can't do that right now. I'll serve you later. I'll serve you when I retire, Jesus. Or I'll get to you later. I'll become a disciple later on. And we do that with all sorts of things. And we make excuses all the time. And to that, Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. He couldn't be any more direct. And he says it so clearly. And the sad part is all the things that we put off following Christ for. Financial uh, security. Uh, getting a promotion, whatever it is, all those things that we're seeking financial security or a job or any of those things are only ever going to be found in following Christ. But yet we say, wait a second, Jesus, I need to get these things in order. And it's, we've got it completely backwards. And that's why Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. But what about the next guy that comes along? He says in verse 61, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to my family. And again, we go back to uh, it's, it's making excuses, not having our priorities right. And I can say, well, wait a second. Your family is very important. Your family is very important. And you are to love your family and you are to take care of it. But I'll remind you a few chapters later in Luke 14, Jesus says the love of your family should look like hate in comparison to your love for me. It's not that you're not supposed to take care of your family and love your family and lead them well and do all those things you are. But Jesus is supposed to come first. And that's what he's saying here. He's telling them it's a matter of priorities. I think of uh, the way we make excuses and what we do. You know, uh, I, I, almost without fail, somebody in here, it's certainly true in my case, uh, you have neighbors living right next to you that don't know the Lord. And how many times do we go, I'm not going to go talk to them because American Idol's on. My favorite show's coming on. I'll get to that guy later. Yeah, he's he's completely lost. And if he died today, he'd spend an eternity separated from God. But I've got my TV show to watch. That's what Jesus is talking about. 
Let me go say goodbye. And he says, whoa, wait a second. You put your hand to the plow and you don't look back when you get what I'm talking about. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's telling them. A disciple of Christ is not someone who fits Jesus in when they have time. A disciple of Jesus reshapes his entire world around Christ and what he's done for him. And that's what he's telling them. And he's saying it over and over. He's saying it's an all out thing. And so that brings us to how do we get this right? So how do we correct that? Because we all do this. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I've done all those things. You make excuses. Right? To be a disciple of Jesus, I want you to think about this. To be a disciple of Jesus means you're looking more and more like him. Right? That's what it means. And if you've been with us in our series as we've been walking through the big overview of the Bible, we were created to glorify God, which is mirror who he is. So being a disciple of Jesus who is the exact imprint of who God is, is becoming more like God, which is glorifying him. Do you see that? So becoming a disciple of Jesus is what you were made for. But we put it off and we make excuses and we set it over here and we go, "Ah, maybe not. So how do we get away? How do we do that? How do we really start to get it? Jesus says a few things just from the practical side, and then we'll get to the, the base level. Why? But just the practical things first. Verse 58 When he tells the man, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus is saying is if you follow me, you need to count the cost. You need to understand that following Christ is not always easy. What it looks like to follow Jesus is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what it's like to love your neighbor as yourself? It's hard. It's real hard because what happens is you're putting other people ahead of you to serve and love other people means I care more about your well-being than my own. I'm going to look for ways that I can say that's not easy. And when we make it into oh, everything's all perfect and it's wonderful. And it's... Now, the, the good news is it's not all bad either. What happens when you start to do that? You realize that you were made to be outwardly focused on others and you have a joy that you wouldn't get any other way. But it's still hard sometimes. And so the first part Jesus says is you you realize that this isn't all easy. You count the cost of what it's like to follow me. He says that in verse 58 is essentially what he's saying. Or in verse 60, when he says, Lave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And what he's telling us is you make my kingdom and who I am and serving me primary over everything else. That comes first. You count the cost, but then you start to rearrange your entire life about what that means to follow me and to show people what it's like to love me and to share that as you go. Everything should be a distant second. You know, in Jesus's culture, the Hebrew culture, the idea of worship, the idea of worship literally means obedience. Total and complete obedience to Christ is worship. So when you start to love other people the way he's loved us and you put them first and you start, it's an act of worship in everything you do. And so that's what he's calling us to. And that's what he's saying is you make me first in everything else. And you begin to do that. And in verse 62, Jesus says to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And when we read that, that's another one that's a little bit obscure to us. Plowing a field. We have some farmers here. We have some people that know a lot more about it than I do. But today we use tractors. We climb into a cab and turn it on. Then it was uh, pulling it behind an ox or a donkey. 
in plowing a field was you had to have both hands fully invested, looking ahead where you're going, not straying from one side to the other, or you'd get off. And so when Jesus uses this and he talks about what it means to be a disciple and following me is what he's saying is it's hard and it takes all your concentration and all your effort and you have to do this all the time. It's a full time thing. I want you just to think about that. To love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, that's a moment-by-moment taking thought captive day in and day out following Jesus. It's like plowing a field. The good news, though, is it's wonderful when you start to do it. And he knows that in saying that and calling them. And the reality is when we do that, when we start to see that, when we start to become like Jesus, become disciples... A lot of times in churches today, we become consumers. There's a difference between this. We we see it as we come to the church and you meet my needs. And if I like it, okay, then maybe I'll stay and maybe I won't and I'll come. And if, if, if you do enough things that are comfortable to me, then that's good and you can minister to me. We're being a consumer when we do that. Jesus doesn't ask for consumers. He doesn't say, come and follow me for an hour a week. And see if things are good enough that you'll keep coming back. Right? He, he calls for disciples. I want disciples. By the way, there's, there's going to be things we do in this church that we're going to mess up or we're going to do wrong. And you might think, oh, I don't know why they do it that way. And I say this in the most loving way. But this is not about you. I'm sorry. But the reality is what we're seeking to do here when we meet together is we're seeking to make disciples. Our singular purpose and goal here is to point you to Jesus and say, let's be more like him together. That's what we're about. That's why we're here. And that might scare you a little bit. And that's okay. It scares me sometimes when I really think about what that looks like. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's saying we're about. That's what he's saying it looks like to follow me. You ever wonder why the early church grew like it did? from 70 and the 12 and about 100 people to just throughout the world, the reason it did is because it was a bunch of disciples. There were no consumers. There were no come meet my needs. It was people who were sold out, who had put their hand to the plow, that are following Christ no matter what, and they changed the world. We can do the same thing with this group of people if we truly become disciples. If we seek to see it that way. So how is that possible we're going to end here this morning. How do we ever get that? And I think part of the reason, the how, is verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that is such a loaded verse in everything he says. We've talked about what he means by setting his face. He set his face on the cross and the heart of the gospel and laying his life down for us. But I want us to think about just that first term right before it, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. We get the the reality of the gospel and what Christ has done for us, but that taken up is a real interesting uh, phrase in scripture. A lot of times it talks about Jesus being lifted up. We talked about that last week or two weeks ago. The being lifted up is him going to the cross, but being taken up has a little more to it than that. It's not just the cross, but it's what the cross purchases. It's what comes out of Jesus going to the cross for us. And what comes out of that is that God is going to come back and remake all things. 
What comes out of that is when we get 51, that's the how we do this, the how we can be disciples and follow after him and lay everything else aside and have this singular purpose because we see what is to come. We become eternally minded. We understand what that means to follow Jesus and to bring other people into following Jesus. It means everything. Because when he returns, he's going to remake everything and you will never for a moment ever regret following him as far and as fast and as hard as you possibly can ever. Because of what was going to happen, the glory that is to come. The glory that is to come will far outweigh anything else. And that's the how. That's why we can do it. That's why as hard as some of those things sound, and if you're visiting here today, I hope I didn't scare you off and you never come back. But that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus, to make everything else come after him. That's why I can say, and I'm going to end with this this morning, because hopefully it makes sense with everything we've said. And it's in Luke uh, 9, verse 23. Jesus says this to, to them around. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, Jesus says you die to yourself and you make it all about me. And it will be so far worth it. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's our prayer that that's what we would become. And that's who we would be. And that's what our singular focus would be about. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that uh, that is who we would become as a body of believers, that we would urge one another, that we would encourage one another, that we would come together, that we would have true praise, that we would spend time in your word, that we would pray for one another, all for the purpose of following you more and more and more each and every day, that we would see you in your kingdom coming to life right in front of us, being revealed at every turn. I pray that that would be what unites us. That as a body of people, that that's what would be unites us. That as we prepare for the wonderful celebration that is Easter, that that's what would be on our minds, what you've purchased on the cross and what it now means for us. That we would see that each and every day. I thank you for these people that are here. I thank you for those that you have called and that you love. And I pray that we would be so diligent to share that love with our community and our friends and our families. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.